Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're doing well on this Sunday evening. Want to remind all of you to go to rebelcapitalistlive.com. Get your tickets ASAP. We got to check out these speakers real quick. This is going to completely blow your mind. If you haven't gotten your tickets, you need to do that ASAP. Let's check this out. We've got my good buddy Mike Maloney is going to be there. Peter Schiff, Robert Barnes, Kenny McElroy, Chris McIntosh, Hartman, Lynn Alden, Simon Black, MC, Robert Helms from the Real Estate Guys, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder. We're going to add a couple more speakers between now and then. This is an event you are not going to want to miss. And it's not just about the speakers. It's about networking with your fellow rebel capitalists and really getting the information you need to weather the storm that uh, I think we all believe is coming here in 2023. When you look at the yield curve, you look at the shakiness in the banking system, you look at the discount window at the Fed being used up to 160 billion when it was only being used at about 115 billion during the GFC. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But there are a lot of cracks that we are seeing in the system. So really to understand how to not only protect your wealth, but to build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control, central banks and big governments, you got to check out Rebel Capitalist Live this year in Orlando, May 12th through the 14th. And again, you're going to get your tickets at Rebel Capitalist Live. Okay, let's shoot back over to your questions this evening. See what we got. And the abbreviated session, guys, I apologize still this one uh dealing with the dislocated shoulder and uh recovering from that concussion that i got when i was wakeboarding last weekend so uh just trying to give my body and my brain a, a little bit of a rest so we're only doing a half hour and then i've got to do the rebel capitalist pro live stream after this okay question how did you dis? oh well <laughs> how did you dislocate your shoulder i was wakeboarding if you guys know what that is for us old timers just like water skiing, basically, but your feet are a little different position. The board's a little bit different. And uh, I was going to town and uh, I was getting way out on the outside of the boat. And I was going to cut back as hard as I could. And I was cutting back and I was whipping across the wake and I was going to jump the entire wake. Uh, at least that was the idea. And instead of hitting the wake and jumping, the, the nose of the wakeboard actually caught the kind of the upper part of the wake and it, it, it basically mousetrapped me straight into the, onto the water and it, it, it pulled my left arm, the rope, and that's what ripped it out of socket. And then at the same time, that mousetrap, it hit, I hit my head right on the water. And when you hit your head on the water that hard, it's basically like hitting it on concrete. And, uh, that's, that's the extent of the accident. Fortunately, we're, you know, the Colombian guys that we were with that were driving the boats, they're right on top of it. Uh, they got me to the back of the boat, you know, sped me over to the, the little town there. Ambulance was waiting for me. They, the paramedics helped me into the ambulance and got me to the hospital and the hospital x-rayed it. They have to x-ray it first to determine how to get it back in. You can't just jam it back in or else then you, you risk damaging more of the ligaments and the muscles and the whatever else is in there. And uh, so they, they did a great job. Uh, I've broken a ton of bones in my body. And uh, this by far was the most excruciating pain I've ever felt in my life. 
they they showed me the x-ray just the other day when i went to a specialist here in medellin and uh, you know usually i guess it's about that far out of the out of where it's supposed to be in the socket right here and mine was a good three inches i mean the the bone wasn't even close to the shoulder socket i mean it, it was that far away <laughs> so Anyway, I've got to go in for an MRI this week, and that's when they'll because they got to wait for the swelling to go down to do an MRI to determine whether or not I'll need surgery. So hopefully I won't, but uh, we'll keep you posted. All right, that was the story behind the dislocated shoulder last weekend. All right, what do you think of the percentage chances are having another gold confiscation, considering? Far less people in the country own physical compared to, I and mean, we're not we're not on a gold standard. So I, I would say it's 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 very very low. That said, do I think you should have physical gold? Yeah, because why even deal with any counterparty risk? And uh, you know that's another reason why I like those those watches. And I know it's kind of outside of the box and it's not right for everybody, but you know, you've got a Rolex or that's kind of the ones that I like, and it just gives you that purchasing power outside of the system. Are they ever going to ban Rolexes? Probably not. So, and that's going to be a store of value that's right on par with gold. In my opinion, if you get the right one and you buy it at the right price. So that may give you, if you're really, really worried about that, I I'd look into a watch or, or Bitcoin, you know, you got to be able to suck up the vol with, with Bitcoin they say that Bitcoin fixes everything. And the one ca- the one thing that Bitcoin hasn't yet fixed is that most people's bills and expenses are denominated in dollars. So you're taking FX risk. Now, if you can sit there and hold the Bitcoin for the next 20 years and you don't have to worry about it, that's one thing. But uh, yeah, it doesn't apply to a lot of people. But I do think it's wise to have some Bitcoin, not because it's going to a million or because there's a guaranteed chance that it, or it's guaranteed that it becomes the global currency it's just math <laughs> they say. Uh, but i think it's wise to have some purchasing power outside of the banking system just like owning physical gold and rolex and it is easy to to port it's very very portable obviously and um, almost impossible to confiscate and so i think it just makes sense but uh for for me if personally, you know, having a hundred percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin, uh, that doesn't achieve my objectives for for my priorities with my portfolio. Okay, is it okay? Starting at six three, or excuse me, seven thirty per screen, or six thirty for the description. I don't know what the, the the problem is. The people that set these up for me live in Columbia and they have absolutely no concept of daylight savings time. Like they don't even know what it is. They've never experienced it. They don't, you try to explain it to them and they, it just, you get the deer in headlights. So uh, sorry if the times are a little bit off here. I'll have to fix that when we get done with the live stream. Anyone also turn in, tune into Rich Cooper's channel? I do. <laughs> Rich Cooper's a really good buddy of mine. I love his content. I'm really good friends with Rolo as well. So for all those guys and gals out there, I think you should uh, listen to what those guys say. At the very least, read the rational mail. It'll do you some good. Understand some psychology a little bit better. Have you given any more thought to crisis investing? If so, is the U.S. somewhere where you'd consider? Sure. Of course. Yeah, everyone always calls me a perma bear and all these things, but 
well, those people who really have watched my channel, they, they know that's not true. So I first and foremost do point out the flaws that I see in the global economy or in the US economy. And I think there are many, many cracks or many, many flaws. It's fundamentally unsound. So there's a lot to point out. And I do that so people just aren't whistling by the graveyard, which I think, I mean, I'd ask you guys, how many of your friends and family member Freds would you put into that category? Probably a lot, 99%. So I try to do that at the very least. But when there, when I see opportunity, when I'm out there building a watch list or when I'm buying, you know, I, I let people know. And that's exactly what I did in, in March of 2020. And uh, most of you know, too, by watching my channel or being a member of Rebel Capitalist Pro, that I'm very bullish on commodities over the next decade. You know, I think we're in a commodity super cycle, but like everything else, the prices never go up in a straight line. So I'm just mostly in gold and T-bills right now, just waiting for the prices to get cheap. And they're starting to get cheap. Look at that gas. I know coal's coming down. I don't know what copper is doing, but uh, if, if whatever the yield curve is predicting comes to fruition, in the next, in 2023 or the beginning of 2024, uh, most likely that'll bring down commodity prices and hopefully they'll come down to a point where I would like to add to my positions. You know, gold miners, I think, are very interesting. I'd like to add to my Bitcoin position, assuming that I saw some capitulation. Almost saw it when you got to about 15,000, but I don't think it was, there was still too much hysteria for me. Uh, right now, there's obviously a massive amount of hysteria. Whenever you have anyone that's prominent in the community come out and say that the price of the asset is going to go to a million dollars in the next 90 days, that is not his, that is not panic. And like Jim Rogers teaches us, I like to buy panic and sell hysteria. And uh, that's not a sign of panic, like I said. So I'm holding off. But there's a lot of things that I have on that watch list that I'm, uranium's another one, uh, that I'm very bullish on long term. Hopefully, we'll get an opportunity to, to see that pile of money sitting in the corner and go pick it up. And if you're not familiar, that's, again, a, a saying from Jim Rogers from his uh, first interview, or I think his only interview with Market Wizards, which was a, a three-book series, which I can't recommend enough. How quickly would, would you go long treasuries become a liability or worse? How quickly could long end of treasuries become a liability? I mean, I think if you own I-bonds, you're locked in. I, I've, I haven't purchased I-bonds. I know my buddy Adam Taggart talks about those a lot. But I think you're you're pretty much locked into a yield. You can hold them till they mature. I don't think there's anything that you got to worry about. I think they mature, what, within a year or so, maybe a year or two years? Uh, I'm not sure on that one, so definitely check. But as far as owning 10 or 30-year treasuries, obviously there, there's a lot of risk there that yields go up. I mean, even if they don't go up, there's a lot of risk that you, if you were to hold it to maturity, I would highly doubt that you maintain your purchasing power. Because think about that. If you're buying a 10-year treasury at 3.5%, uh, what is inflation going to do over the next 10 years? I would bet it's going to be higher than that when you average it out. I would much prefer to be, you know, the, the, buying the long into the curve right now is just a speculation. It's either a speculation or it's a hedge. So if you're a huge pension fund or if you're one of these big pools of money, 
and you've got to hold all these long assets, you know, these long stocks or whatever it is, you're going to buy those, those 10 year, 30 year, et cetera, to hedge your portfolio. Or if you're just a trader, you're going to buy it because you're just betting that we're going to have a, a recession where those interest rates are going to go down and you're going to have a capital gain by taking that duration risk. But personally, I don't like to play that game. And for me, I just much prefer to own treasuries, but T-bills. So just one month, three month. I think actually the I think I own six month and one year T-bills that I bought about six or nine months ago. I'd have to look, but they're, they're almost coming to maturity. So I'll probably have to roll them over. But when I roll them over, I'll roll them into a, a shorter maturity. Because with those, I don't see... I can't really think of a scenario where those wouldn't be money good. You know, even if the federal government doesn't increase the debt ceiling, you're still getting paid back because by borrowing to pay off the existing debt, they're not increasing the overall amount of debt they have. And it's just th those are used. I, I think the, the central planners are smart enough to know that if, if they defaulted on short-term T-bills, like outright default, the entire global monetary system would implode. I, I, and I mean that literally. Uh, if you think the GFC was scary, that's that was a picnic. That was child's play. That was defaulting on the collateral side of the, if you want to look at a pie chart, uh, the collateral, which was mortgage-backed securities. But if you default on, on <laughs> short-term T-bills, oh my gosh, that, that would be a GFC times 100. And... Uh, they they know that you know they're not that smart but they're smart enough to know that and and if they're not smart enough to know that the people who are have them on speed dial out of all the places to store dollars because all your dollars are going to be an uh, a liability uh, of the central bank or a liability of a bank all any dollar is going to be a liability it's going to have a counterparty now the green pieces of paper obviously that's in your back pocket that has the least amount of counterparty risk but as far as the second to that, I would say T-bills. Hey guys, I wanna remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. George, isn't the Fed basically reverting back to not QE, but technically QE? Yeah, this is a great question. I've got to rank this right up there with one of the things, one of the top probably three things that confuse people the most is the mechanics of QE. I would say number one, it would be the mechanics of money and money creation or currency, let's say, dollars, you know, how they're created, how they're destroyed, uh, what impacts M2, what doesn't. But th this, this would be definitely in the top three. 
So I would agree with you that whenever the Fed is buying treasuries uh, without trying to manipulate the short end of the, the overnight rate, right? Because before QE, how would the Fed manipulate Fed funds? You know, they didn't have IOR back then. So they would just simply buy or sell treasuries a little bit at a time here, a little bit at a time there, just to bring up that rate or to bring it down. That was how they micromanaged Fed, Fed funds. But they never really held those uh, uh, treasuries for any specific time. They just had them, bought them, sold them just to manage that overnight rate. Now, obviously, QE changed that. That's when they had some sort of purpose for buying treasuries above and beyond just the overnight rate. Now, they there's so many... Uh, bank reserves in the system. They've done so much QE that the without IOR, the interest on reserves, the interest rate, the Fed funds would always be zero because the system is just, it's just flushed with reserves. So uh, now I think anytime they buy treasuries, I mean, technically, come on guys, let's be honest. That's, that's QE. And you could say, oh, we're only doing it in this, what is it? Bank term funding program. I think that's the four letter facility they just came out with. They're saying, oh no, it's not QE because we're just, you know, we're just giving them bank reserves and they're pledging collateral and it's not going on our balance sheet or whatever they're saying. But bottom line, it's, it's still the same. But what's different? What's different than 2020? Because most people, when they, they the, the reason they even pay attention to QE is because they want to know how that impacts M2 money supply. They want to. They they think that's adding liquidity to the system, or that's in. Or it's, it's money printer go burr, or uh, whatever term they want to use. And so when they use that term, implicit in what they're saying is that it's going to increase the amount of currency units that are in the economy chasing goods and services. Now this is false. Because if the central bank is just doing a transaction with a bank, then it doesn't impact M2. Because M2, really, by definition, is just the liability side of a commercial bank's balance sheets, deposit liabilities. And so if it's just, if the transaction is just simply the Fed saying, okay, JP Morgan, you've got some treasuries, go ahead and give them to me or pledge them or whatever and we'll give you bank reserves. How does that impact M2? Zero, it doesn't. It doesn't impact it at all. So now how's that different from 2020? Because then the Fed would go out and they weren't just buying from banks or, or lending to banks or whatever. They were just buying in, in the secondary market. And so then they go through the primary dealers. Now who's selling? Well, that would be non-bank entities in the real economy. Okay, well, that's way different. Because if the Fed, if any bank, not just the Fed, any bank, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, if they buy a treasury or a mortgage-backed security from a non-bank entity, that's going to increase M2 money supply. Now, there's an argument as to whether they're pulling out currency units that are rotating in the economy with velocity that are actually chasing goods and services. That's a completely separate topic of discussion. But it, it, the bottom line is whenever a bank buys from a non-bank, it's increasing M2. And whenever a non-bank buys from a bank, it decreases M2. That's another thing that most people don't think about too much. Uh, so then it becomes a, a question of velocity and whatnot. 
But this is, uh, you know, the only other argument that you might hear is that, well, yeah, but it's going to increase M2 because it gives the banks uh, more balance sheet capacity. So they're going to go out there and lend more because now they've got so many more bank reserves. And that's nonsense. That's a complete misunderstanding of the banking system. Because what that implies is that the banks are somehow constrained by the amount of bank reserves. Now, technically, that would decrease their balance sheet capacity. But in practice, it doesn't. Why? Because the banks create liquidity. The banks create dollars. So how can they be short on dollars? They create it. You say, yeah, George, but they can't create it if they're not willing to lend. Okay, well, that's a different question. That's a question of counterparty risk. So you, you can't just say that by adding all these bank reserves that they're going to go out and lend more. Well, how do you know? It depend, if they're not lending to begin with, to the point where the Fed, or, or if the environment is so toxic, or if there's so much counterparty risk in the system to the point where the Fed has to come in and do QE, does doing QE really, uh, if it's just with the banks, does that increase their willingness to lend? Not really. And you say, well, it might increase demand because it brings down interest rates. Not all the time. Look at a chart of QE and compare it to the to the ten year Treasury. It's, uh, most of the time, it does the opposite effect. When they do QE, the ten year the yield on the ten year Treasury goes up, not down. So, and again, this is. Well, if you can just get your head around this, you're going to have such a massive edge and you're going to be light years ahead of a lot of the quote unquote professionals that you hear on podcasts or on FinTwit or even people that are interviewed by CNBC and Bloomberg. If you can just get your head around how QE does or does not impact M2 money supplier M1, uh, boy, you're going to be ahead of the game, way ahead of the game. And what it just simply boils down to is is a bank buying from a non-bank or is a non-bank buying from a bank or is a bank buying from a bank if a bank buys from a bank doesn't impact m2 zero if a bank buys from a non-bank then it increases m2 if a non-bank buys from a bank it decreases m2 that's it it's as easy as that once you can get your head or and then obviously if a non-bank buys from a bank then it doesn't increase m2 either so as long as you can get your head around those four transactions you're going to be at an expert level in no time. What is the impact of the U.S. recession on Europe? Will it just be a monetary impact or could it affect other areas? So I think what you really have to understand is or think about what the yield curve is predicting. So is the yield curve just predicting that, should I say, was the yield curve just predicting Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and Signature Bank? Was that it? It was just predicting some regional problems in the United States and some problems with Deutsche and, and Credit Suisse. Maybe, maybe not. Because if that's what the yield curve, the inversion of the yield curve, was predicting, if that was the tsunami that it was warning us, then when the Fed came out with this four-letter program, you would have seen the yield curve steepen dramatically and stay steepened and then continue to steepen. But what did we see? Oh, and by the way, there's two forms of steepening. As you guys, most of you know, there's a good kind and a bad kind. <laughs> and I know one's a bull steepener and a bear steepener, but that, that's just kind of industry lingo to confuse you. The bad kind is when the front end of the curve goes down. The good kind is when the long end of the curve goes up. Those are the good and bad steepeners, right? So what did we see? We saw the bad steepener after they announced their facility that was supposed to solve all the problems and Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell Christine Lagarde come out and say, oh, don't worry about anything because we have the tools. We have the tools for that. We have the tools for that. It's like Elizabeth Warren. 
but they don't have the, t- the market saying, no, you don't have the tools for this because you don't even know what the problem is, idiot. And you, that was expressed through the, the two-year treasury plummeting down. And that's what started to steepen out the curve or uninvert the curve was the two-year treasury going right back down very close to the 10-year treasury. And so when that uninverts completely, that, that's when you know the storm clouds are right outside your window. And, and you really need to be taking precautions. So I haven't checked over the weekend. The last time I did, the two-year treasury was about 30 or 40 basis points above the 10-year. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was 120 basis points. So you can see that curve uninverting. And uh, again, that that's it's telling you that the Fed didn't fix anything. They didn't fix the real problem. So assuming that they fixed the regional banks and Credit Suisse was taken over and that fixed the problem, the next logical conclusion is that inverted yield curve is saying, hey, that ain't the problem, my friend. That was just a symptom. And uh, I think we'll, we'll most likely see what the real problem is here in the next few months. But the way to time that and be very on top of when it may play out is you got to look at that two-year. And again, when it crosses the 10-year and it reverts or uninverts or whatever the proper word is, and then goes to where the curve is no longer inverted, but it's because the two years going up, not the 10 year going, uh, excuse me, the t- two year going down, not the 10 year going up. That's when you've really got to be on your guard. So we'll go ahead and uh, end it there, guys. Let me do some shout outs here. We've got uh, Max Door in the house. We've got RR, Swearworks, Myron, Kevick, Martin, RR, James B, Jude K, Silverman, Spodies, Crypto Beauty, Daryl Tanner, Find a Hyro. Bomac extra barbecue sauce. <laughs> All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your evening and definitely check out Rebel Capitals Live to get your tickets ASAP as we get closer to that event. Price goes up, so get them uh, as soon as you possibly can. And I'll see you on the next video. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out the Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to the George Gammon YouTube channel.